Hello comrades, Ryan Morano on mic. Today I'm talking to local actor Nick McLean and local director Kat Osborne, who for a second year in a row are bringing a Christmas story to our stage. I have to say it's a, a bit of a special show. Why? Well, Nick, Kat and some great people are bringing to life It's a Wonderful Life. And it's being presented at downstairs at His Majesty's Theatre. But this is strictly not a traditional theatrical adaptation. In fact, this is a live radio play adaptation. But what makes this show special is that no one is getting paid. Because that make it <laughs> uh, well, because all proceeds will be no- donated to Anglicare WA, a truly wonderful organisation which supports families in need. Guys, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here in the comfort of our own home. <laughs> Very convenient. <laughs> so uh, for me, I've seen copious amounts of parodies of It's a Wonderful Life, mm-hmm. you know, from A Bit of Fry and Laurie to The Simpsons. So for the less informed people out there, like myself, uh, what is It's a Wonderful Life about? Yeah, Great question, um, because you're right, it's one of these stories that we have um, kind of floating around our cultural milieu, and it's something you can come across, in, in, especially in parody form, without ever actually encountering the original. Um, and that was certainly the case for me up until recently. This is a, a story that came about um, uh, from, a, from a writer who wrote a short story, actually, which he couldn't get published um, and so what he did was he sent it out with Christmas greeting cards to, to his friends. Uh, the short story then got the attention of studio executives who purchased the rights to it, and it made its way to Frank Capra, the great director. And then it became this film, this amazing film. So the, the basic story is about this, this guy in this small town in New York, and he, just, he, he sort of can't catch a trick. He, he has these big dreams of moving away from his town, having these huge adventures, this incredible successful career. And, and but sort of what happens to him is that he he ends up watching everyone else in his life kind of move on and 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 becoming millionaires or war heroes or all the rest and he kind of stays stuck in this town, which he has a lot of uh, pretty mixed feelings about, which which tip over into really depressed feelings when a financial crisis strikes him. So he's a he's a banker. Um, he uh, gives out uh, loans to people in his community, particularly migrants and poorer people who who need a, a leg up. So it reaches the point where he decides that um, actually things are so bad and his life has been such a waste that it would be better if he just uh, committed suicide, which is a pretty bleak uh, bleak premise for a Christmas movie. Yeah, Um, I have to say. Yeah, which I think puts some people off. But, um, but, uh, you know, the whole thing up to this point has been watched over by these two angels, uh, one of whom... um, uh, is sent down on this mission to to show him why his life wasn't a failure and that he actually had this incredible life where he made everyone's lives uh, so much better and had this profound impact on his community. So in a kind of Christmas Carol-like way, he's shown what the world would have been like if he'd never been born. Uh, and uh, needless to say, it's a whole lot worse. <laughs> uh, so he, he ends up kind of discovering that... You know, he has he has had this incredible life. Uh, he's he he becomes really proud of, of of what he's done of his community, and he really embraces his role um, in in the town that he grew up in. So, uh, listening from that, Cat, director, of course, there is a lot of contemporary relevance to the show play, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think it's got a really unique sense of humanity in a lot of ways. Like the idea of a banker helping people less fortunate than them is sort of unheard of <laughs> in, yes. in our late capitalist society. Um, it's, it's quite, uh, I guess, portrays a quite moralistic almost, you, you know, way of looking at the world. Uh, and I think also, you know, in a world that feels quite out of control and we all feel like, what can we do to really make a difference? And this is a, a story that really stands up for uh, small, everyday, consistent acts of kindness and being embedded in your community as something that's really valuable as opposed to, you know, what he sees as valuable at the start of the play, which is like going off to war and being a hero or going to do big things, um, which a lot of his friends go and do, which is equally valid. But I think we're all really spun this idea that, you, you know, we might as well not try because we can't make a difference maybe we're never going to be that you know Leonardo mm. DiCaprio with millions of money helping solve climate change but there are things that we actually can do in our community that make a real difference in people's lives which is also one of the reasons we thought it was a great piece for our for AngloKWA and to celebrate what they're trying to do uh, to help people who are struggling with homelessness and poverty so we thought thematically that it really tied into the cause as well as uh, wanting to do a Christmas show. It's interesting politically, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you if you said these days you're making a movie about a banker who wants to commit suicide, most people go, oh, great, well, of course he does, or of course he should. Um, and, and I suppose back in back in the day, uh, you know, a lot of the people who made this film were, were Republicans, um, you know, which has a very different meaning to be a Hollywood Republican in the 1940s as opposed to a what maybe a Republican represents uh, to us uh, now or represents to us in Australia. But there is a real, there is a real connection, I think, with old-fashioned values and in, in a very positive way. And actually this is a character who has kind of been, kind of been infected by the, the cliche of what the American dream is, this mm. idea that you, you, you have to strive and, and go forth and succeed on, you know, on ridiculous terms. And actually the, he, he's done wonderful things just by staying in his hometown, by being a responsible member of his community, by giving people assistance, by treating them kindly, uh, by putting others ahead of himself. Um, and so actually it's, it's, it's quite an interesting message to come out of Hollywood at this time. Um, it's almost a, an, mm. an, an antidote to, to, to the American dream or, the, or, or to, the, you know, to an unhealthy idea of what that is to succeed. Yeah, because contemporary Australia, Banking Royal Commission, that comes to mind mm. when, I, when I think about it. And it's amazing how when we look back into the past, you see these relics of morality, you know, these lovely relics. But also speaking about relics, I was on YouTube the other day because, like I said before, never seen this before. Um, and you, you remark on how the performances of particularly Jimmy Stewart and Lionel Barrymore. So Jimmy Stewart plays uh, the character that you are portraying, Nick. And uh, Lionel Barrymore is Old Man Potter. Just to go back the process of putting on the show, because, one, it's being done at His Majesty's Theatre. I'm just curious, did, was it easy to organise such an event or did you keep bumping into these, you know, Potter-like figures in the Perth Theatre scene that said, nah? Oh, quite the opposite. Everyone has been so um, so keen to be a part of this and to to facilitate it and to make it happen. Um, we had a yeah, we had a meeting earlier in the year with Helen Stewart um, of His Majesty's Theatre, saying, "Look, we've got this idea for a show. We'd, we'd, here's what it is. We'd love to do it. We want it to raise money for Anglicare, WA." And um, she was just automatically on board. Um, and really keen to help us put this together and help make it. And um, similarly with everybody we've approached, um, all the actors we've, we've contacted, 
Um, everyone's been keen to participate. You know, obviously we have people who haven't been available, um, but the, the, the number of people who we contacted who were an enthusiastic yes in principle to this concept mm-hmm. is really remarkable. Um, and I think this is a lot about how generous the Perth performing arts community is, and probably most performing arts communities, I, I dare say, uh, you know, have this generous streak running through them. Because this is the second time you've done it. First time you did a very fun adaptation of A Christmas Carol yes. at the Blue Room Theatre. What convicted you to start this tradition? Is, do you see this as a tradition of putting on shows? Yeah, very much so. This is something that we want to be an, an annual tradition, a, a, yeah, a, a new tradition uh, that, that happens every year. It's been a bit of a, bit of a passion project in my brain for a couple of years, um, just looking at the fact that you know, a lot of cities around the world would have you know, a big annual Christmas show um, uh, that, that, you know, that raises money, whether it's a pantomime or something traditional or, or something a bit more contemporary. And just thinking, gosh, this would be a nice thing to happen in Perth. Like, we do have this really great community, this really generous community. Um, and there's a bit of a hunger, I think, for, for festive stories, for, for stories uh, that are inspiring, that are um, a bit romantic, a bit uplifting. It's the time of year where we all kind of want to get that good feeling. So, I, I, you know, when I, I brought this up to Kat a couple of years ago, we were talking about it, and, um, yeah, you, you really kind of jumped at it as well. And, I, uh, you know, we realised this is something we could do together. Yeah, I'm sort of the make it happen. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. We can do it. Let's go. Uh, so, yeah, but it's, it's been really fun. I mean, adapting A Christmas Carol was lo- loads of fun. Mm. A bit different to this because uh, someone has already adapted this and we... we producing our version of, of the script, an American writer. Um, but in in having that, the, the script is already very fun and there's plenty of room for us to add our unique, creative, funny spin on it. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with the form of a live radio play, this script in particular begins with the actors making an announcement that they're doing this recording and you're the live studio audience. And so um, Luke Hewitt, is, who's playing one of the actors, he introduces all of the actors who are all famous stars <laughs> from a, a various silly made-up fictional, fictional films. films yeah. <clears throat> um, so there's a whole extra layer of the actors who are performing this for you and what might happen between those actors on stage while trying to keep the radio play together. So we've got a little bit of a, a B storyline, I guess, sort of, a sort of farcical under underneath the radio play that might go wrong at elements as well. So as a live audience, you really get that extra layer. And we've got the live foley, the sound effects underneath. We have a live band. So, you know, there's so much, so much to look forward to. So much fun. How's your being collaboration? Because what I love is the foley, the sound effects. Mm. That's what I'm interested in. How's your collaboration been with the foley artist? Well, we have Andrew David, who is fantastic. And uh, people may have seen him in uh, working with Scott McCardle and like a staged radio play and, and other things around town. Um, so, yeah, he's already got a massive bag of tricks, which is great. Yeah, and the great thing about Andrew, he's like so creative and capable. In a lot of ways, he just kind of goes and does his thing and it's always 
pretty much exactly what you want. Uh, so, yeah, it's been really fun. And I just think it turns you into a little kid. There's something about watching Foley that's so magical and it just makes you go, wow, that's that sounds completely different from what I imagined it to be or, or how it plays tricks on your brain. And what I really want to do is, like, the audience to enjoy watching the stage, but I really want them to be able to, at points, just, like, close their eyes and go, yeah, this would totally... I could just listen to this as well. But you, you have the fun of getting to see everyone create it um, in front of your eyes as well. Um, and all the actors doing a multitude of characters, great voices, different accents. Uh, that's really fun as well. Except for me. I've... Except for you, George <laughs> Bailey, Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> just, yeah, just, yeah. just George and me. Yeah. Uh, and just, uh, just Mary Hatch for Joe Morris. Yes. But, the, le- you know, the leading. The young and old versions. Yeah. Speaking about Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, in the show, Nick, you, you, you know, you're playing the role that um, the American actor James Stewart portrayed in the film. I don't know what your acting process is like, but I'd imagine you know, during your preparation and research, did you avoid Stewart's portrayal of George Bailey? I only ask this because, you know, James Stewart, he's quite an iconic actor with very distinct mannerisms and movement and, you know, I, I say, you know, you know, those, they call it, you know, those isms. Sometimes I, I would. Um, avoid another actor's performance. That would normally be my process. For for this one, I, I went the other way. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I wanted to see the film because I'd never seen the film before. So I had the, you know, the, the joy of discovering it for the first time recently. And, and, and wow, it's, it's an incredible performance from, from, from the whole cast, but I think particularly from, from him. It's so, it's so detailed. There's so much of himself in it sort of knowing a bit about his context of having served in World War II and having mm. just came, come, come back from serving and actually being a bit nervous about acting. I think he had a, he sort of asked Frank Capra, like, is there such a thing as forgetting about how to act? Because um, I think I might have forgotten. Um, and because he was quite highly ranked as well, wasn't he, in the war? Like, yeah. You know, he, 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 he was the highest ranked Yeah, I'm not actor. sure if that was... Not sure if that was during World War Two that he was that, oh, but, but, but okay. over his Sorry, over his lifetime know. he became a brigadier colonel, so like a one star general. Yeah, and he did submissions um, in Vietnam, I heard. Oh right. Yeah, for yeah, okay. he's a yeah. one of, um, pretty incredible man. Yeah. That's a bit of a sidebar, but yeah. But yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, look, the, the, yeah, there's so much heart in this performance, and for, for me, I thought you know, doing this radio play, we've we've got a combination of um, honouring the original and kind of having anchor points to the original, but also having our own take and our own interpretation. So for me, I've, I've consciously tried to go for having a little bit of his style and vocal texture sort of in my performance, but without it, without it being a carbon copy, if you know what I mean. Yeah, or a pastiche so, or imitation. Yeah, so still... a little bit of a nod towards it. Mm. Um, I mean, the other thing is that the script um, that we have written by Joe Landry, who has done a lot of radio play adaptations... Um, borrows very heavily from the screenplay. And actually, I, th- I think what uh, Joe probably did was was to go off the film as well. So a lot of James Stewart's uh, vocal mannerisms, uh, you know, his, his sort of stutter, the way he'll repeat certain words, is actually all the way through the written text that we have. So in a way, it's a bit hard to avoid going into Jimmy Stewart territory because it's, it's written into our text. Um, and yeah. yeah, so I guess the other thing we've done is a lot of the other performances are quite original and fresh. So, uh, you know, it allows us then also to lean into James 
Stewart's performance a bit. You know, it's not not all of the actors are sort of copying from the film um, in any way. Not that you're copying, that's the wrong word to use, but, you know. Uh, yeah, I, and I think that's also what audiences are, you know, pe- uh, we hope that people come and see this who love the film and also people who've never seen the story and they can discover it for the first time. So they're sort of, uh, you know, trying to make it a little bit for both audiences. Yeah, a little, a little something familiar, a little something new. Yeah. Hmm. I'm just very curious because um, very uh, American, although this uh, film play does have a lot of universal themes, during rehearsal, because you guys are in right in the middle of rehearsals as we speak, was it easy to find the Australianisms or were there such things that you could put, I don't know, like little side jokes or, I don't know, references or... Um, well, we've, we've gone with American accents through the whole cast because the... Because the, um, the uh, conceit, if you like, of the show is that it is a, a New York uh, radio studio in 1947 where this is all happening and these are all stars of the American stage and screen who are populating this radio drama. So there wasn't a lot of room for us to contemporise, I suppose, or, or put um, too much of our own like, Australian well, we thought, context I think we, in, talk, we talked about it, but I think the text it, yeah. is so heavily embedded it felt like it was going to be a bit forced uh, for mm. us not, not to go there. Um, it would certainly be interesting to yeah. see a production that tried to take the you know, the action of the play, the story of the play, and put it in an Australian context. Really. And I think if 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 we had done the ad- adaptation ourselves, we could have approached it in a different way. But mm. um, I think because we really liked this version of it, we felt that we yeah. would go with that. It's really charming, um, yeah. and we also have five rehearsals to put this together so sometimes going for the the more obvious choice uh is the is the right choice <laughs> when there are such times. five rehearsals my god that rehearsals. must be the quickest turnaround ever it's pretty well, once again i think it's about us um you know we're asking everyone to give their time for free it's sort of respecting people's time i mean the good thing about a radio play as well as you know people can be on books yeah, so that allows yeah. us to you know have that freedom but you know a lot of the actors that are involved not just nick have had quite prolific uh careers as voiceover artists and you know really great it's really wonderful to just see people on book being able to create that reality just with their voices um it's not something you get to see a lot of the time like obviously we watch animated films and listen to audiobooks and we can hear that but actually seeing an actor do that in front of you and also very quickly change from one thing to another is is quite uh, it's a lot of fun and i think uh, a lot of audiences really enjoy it yeah i think that's part of the yeah the the other part of the appeal of a radio drama it's it's one it's the foley and just the the ingenuity behind that and watching watching all that happen uh and then watching the actors transform with their voices is is yeah really exciting Mm. Kat, I've got a question for you. What have you been learning? Because obviously, you know, you're a theatre director, well-versed, well-practiced. You're, you're um, practising in a medium that's not necessarily visual. What have you been learning from this process of directing a thing that's for audio but not for yeah, the eyes? That's a great question. Um, well, it's a good reminder that actors are awesome. <laughs> you know, uh, ca- casting is important, Uh you know, if you're lucky enough to have great people, that makes your job a lot easier. You know, a lot of the times I think probably 70% of your job as a director is is casting in a lot of ways, you know, finding the right group of people who can bring it to life. I have still uh, involved a few visual aspects to help with the storytelling because the the story moves quite quickly and there are lots of location. It starts in retelling George's history from as a child 
all the way up to the point where he he is about to jump off the bridge. So it starts in nine. The story starts in 1919 and ends up in the 40s. So these guys have to age themselves through their voices as well as swap characters. Um, so I have done, uh, I guess, an economical uh, stage uh, staging process, but as a way to make it clear to the audience where the focus point of each scene is in the story. So we we actually have the actors changing microphones. It's not just actors standing in a line or with their own microphone there is a bit of um you know who, who's at the forefront who is the point of view playing with status about who's got the power and where they're going to be on stage and at which microphone so I have used um some of those techniques to to help for me it's been really about making the story clear making it fun for the audience having this extra layer of uh the actors at the radio play without taking away from uh the core of the story as well uh being able to have fun with the genre uh as well but also find those moments of authenticity and and trying not to make it too sentimental you know trying Mm. to to draw out um yeah the those truthful moments as well that you want have you been finding the process nick restrictive uh restrictive in what way because I'm just the thing you forget the five you said five microphones so this movement did you feel like your your performance has become a bit siloed in a way oh, I see what you mean um kind of the opposite I think sometimes taking sometimes taking away some options or imposing a restriction like that really frees you up mm-hmm. uh, so in this case I find it really frees me up not having to think about where I'm need to walk on the on the on the stage uh, you know just having that relationship very directly with the audience really means I can just really attack the text and uh, and think about what I'm doing with my vocal performance and really engage in it that way. So and I... there's also there's a good point to mention as well that um, mostly the actors are playing directly out. So that idea of imagining that the person they're talking to is in front of them, you know, because of the microphone. But that's also quite unique for audience as well to connect so clearly to an actor's eyes and feel like you're being put in the position of of them. Uh, talking to you, there's some wonderful moments, especially between Mary um, and George when they're, you know, falling in love or having conflict where they've both just got their eyes out and you get that opportunity to see what each of them are going through, whereas you wouldn't have that as much if they were facing each other, you know, depending on where you were sitting. And it's a very stylistically presentational different thing, but I really, it's, it's quite enjoyable to watch, mm. I think. Mm. But also challenging for for you to have to imagine the person that you're talking to is <laughs> is out out there. Yeah. Oh, and you know, wh- where do you put your script and yeah, yeah. <laughs> where do the, the page turns happen and things yeah. like that? But yeah, yeah, there, there are some lo- logistical things within it to make it run smoothly. Those are the trickiest things yeah. I find. Yeah. Logistical ones. What lessons can be learnt in It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, I think. Uh, recalibrating your idea of what it means to be a successful human being is a really core one. And if you can, if you can look around and think that you have, you've made a positive impact in your, within your family, within your group of friends, within your local community, um, through doing things that are, that are generous and that are, you know, not always self-focused, then that, that can mean that you've had a very successful life or a successful career or that you're a successful person. Um, I think what's really great about It's a Wonderful Life is that um, George Bailey isn't a saint by any stretch. Like, he is self-sacrificing. He, he does always put others first. But, but, but there's always this internal wrestle of, mm. of oh, this is not really what I, I want to do, 
but I'm going to do it. Or he's a real person. He, he you know, really he's is. not. Yeah, he's not. Uh, yeah, like you're saying, he's not a saint. He doesn't find this effortless. No, which not I at think all. is a really good reminder that actually being kind and there for other people is bloody hard. And in a way, it's another great pairing with Anglicare WA in terms of, you know, people who work in the community sector, who are working on the front forefront of people who are homeless or, or need that support. That's a really draining job and demanding job. And I think he, his character really encompasses mm. that, that, that it's a daily struggle and commitment. Yeah. When, when I was chatting to the CEO of Anglicare WA about the story, um, this is Mark Glasson, um, the, the, the thing he said about it was ordinary people can make an impact. That's a great message. That's our message. And I think that's, I think that's absolutely perfect. I mean, this, this is an ordinary person who, um, you know, doesn't live the life that he dreamed, but, uh, what, what he does live is, is, is something quite remarkable in its own way. And, and yeah, like you're saying, he's, he's not perfect. He, he snaps, he gets resentful, he gets, frustrated uh there's a, a point where he says you know why do we have all these kids um you know i mean he adores his kids but it's this you know he really wrestles with um the fact that it's not it's not hard to be good but it's worth it's still worth doing now, i think this will be my last question i'd ask you probably the most controversial great bring it on is november too early for christmas <laughs> um yes, yes in most contexts um however uh, good luck trying to put on a show around December the 21st, 22nd, 23rd. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, we, we, have, we have to stretch um, the limits of what uh, is acceptable to find Christmas time as uh, sim- simply in order to get a venue, to get the actors together. We're asking audiences to suspend their disbelief. Mm. <laughs> Come with us, pretend it's December 24th and it's snowing. <laughs> um, you know, I think we can, I think they can do it. Uh, and, you know, I, I also think Christmas is a stressful time for people and in a way having it just before everyone goes, oh, I've got to go buy all these gifts and organise all my Christmas, uh, you know, family events. It's actually, I think, quite a nice time. Pre-Christmas parties. Christmas is a state of mind. <laughs> I love it. Well, on that note, with being a state of mind, well, go forth, comrades. The season is nigh. Head to the Perth Theatre Trust website to find out more and also to help Nick and Kat help Anglica WA to help families in need.